Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Boris Johnson faced a tight no-confidence vote in his leadership this week as 41% of Conservative MPs voted for him to be ousted. I think it's a, a convincing result, a decisive result, and what it, what it means is that as a, as a government, we can move on and focus on the stuff that I think really matters to people. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be exploring the Prime Minister's close shave with his own party and where his premiership goes next. Johnson may have survived this week's vote, but there may soon be another. Will he have any joy in resetting his political and economic agenda? Our political editor George Parker and chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will analyse. And later on, we'll be looking at the government's latest efforts to tackle the UK's housing crisis by allowing some people in housing associations the right to buy their homes. A gimmick or completing the mission started by Margaret Thatcher. Jim Picard, our chief political correspondent, will decide, along with special guest Vicky Spratt, author of the new book, Tenants. Thank you all for joining the pod. A week ago, Boris Johnson's allies were cheerily predicting that all the talk of a confidence vote in the Prime Minister was nonsense, overhyped by the media. But then, last Sunday, they were taken by surprise when Tory MP submitted the required 54 letters to trigger a new confidence vote in the PM's position. Having badly misread the mood of the Tory party, they scrabbled over 24 hours to try and save his position. Sir Graham Brady, chair of the 1922 Committee of Backbench MPs, declared the result of the no-confidence vote on Monday evening in the Grand Committee Room of 14 in the House of Commons, where Margaret Thatcher saw the end of her career 30 years ago. I can report as returning officer uh, that 359 ballots were cast, no spoiled ballots, that the vote in favour uh, of having confidence in Boris Johnson as leader was 211 votes, and the vote against was 148 votes. And therefore, I can announce that the Parliamentary Party does have confidence. Well, George Parker, thanks for joining the pod as always. How did Number 10 misread the mood of the party so badly in the run-up to this confidence vote? All those people we spoke to in the days up to Monday seemed to say the MPs wouldn't put the 54 letters in, and then suddenly they did. Well, I think there are two things that happen there. I think the first thing to say is that the government's discipline has broken down to the extent that the party whips often don't know what their own MPs are thinking. We've seen a number of occasions like that recently where they seem to be flying blind almost in terms of trying to work out what MPs are actually thinking. I think the other thing that happened was that MPs went back to their constituencies over the long Whitson break and including the Jubilee weekend and they spent the whole time being badgered by constituents at street parties and fates and commemorative events all being told that Boris Johnson had to go. So I think the mood in the party hardened. Boris Johnson's team had no idea what was going on with MPs out in the country. So By the time we got to Monday, I think it came as a bit of a surprise to everyone concerned that we're actually into this incredible 24 hours of drama. 
Well, Robert Shrimsley, the result wasn't exactly a ring endorsement. As you wrote on the day, it was a worse result than John Major had when he called a leadership election himself in 1995 and Theresa May in 2018. Both of those Tory leaders were out of office within two years. Is it going to be the same for Boris Johnson? Well, I mean, I think it was just about the worst possible result from any outcome for the Conservative Party. If he'd gone, there'd be the chance to start again with a fresh sheet of paper. If he'd won comfortably, you'd say, OK, we've killed this issue for a while. And this was exactly in that grey zone that we all sort of thought it might get into, where people are going, well, he's very, very badly wounded. I think it's a real problem for him in the future now. I don't see anything that says this is how he recovers. I don't see the roadmap to that, particularly since the economy is in such a terrible place. And I think that's the fundamental point. You know, one can look at all the reasons why Boris Johnson was in trouble, and George cited a lot of them just now, but the fundamental, very, very basic one is Conservative MPs don't think he's going to win them the next election. It's as simple as that. And they're very, very worried about that. And I don't see what changes that calculation in the coming year. Now, I don't, I'm a bit sceptical of the idea they'll suddenly change the rules. Me too. You know, there's plenty of time for another rule change. If the economy is as grim as we think it is, He's not going to be rushing to the polls in 2023. So there's plenty of time for the Tories to have another look next May. And I think the fact that they know that means his leadership is going to be continually bombarded. We can see it already in issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol. People are saying, well, actually, I'm not going to follow what you say. I'm going to push it this way. I'm going to push it that way. And the potential successors are also thinking about their position even more than usual. So I don't see anything which allows him to exert the kind of leadership authority over the party which helps him restore his position. And that, I think, means that this is going to drag on. I do think we're heading towards the end game, Boris Johnson, but, you know, we've been there before. But I think we are heading towards the end game. We're just not quite sure how long it's going to take to play out. The mood of this week was really set by Jesse Norman, the former Treasury Minister, who published a letter on Monday morning setting out why he no longer had confidence in Boris Johnson. He explained it in more detail to the BBC. We now have a clear picture of a much wider set of concerns, and they are not just about Partygate, although that is a concern. Uh, they are also about core policy issues. You've also got a deep concern about the way in which policy is being conducted, which is to create dividing lines and cultural war and political disagreement just at a time when we need unifying, inclusive, energetic well, on those two points, George, I think one thing you and I both picked up from our reporting this week was that thing of Conservative MPs. We'd had the Jubilee Bank holiday weekend, which is the sort of thing Conservatives just love. It's sort of celebrating the monarchy, village fates, community institutions coming together. And I think quite a few MPs just simply felt that, as Jesse Norman said, the tenor and the tone of what the government is doing is just out of step with what their values are. But then also on policy details, they're not exactly happy either. No, I think on the question about bringing the country together, I think that was a really striking weekend, wasn't it, where the country was looking for reasons to come together, to have a party, to feel good about themselves and to cling on to things, you know, in very uncertain times and clinging on to the monarchy as a symbol of the kind of institutions which represent continuity. And, you know, the sight of Boris Johnson turning up at St Paul's Cathedral for that Thanksgiving service and being booed by some people, not all, as we said, but some people in that crowd... You know, they weren't a crowd of Corbynites, they were a crowd of people waving Union Jacks, the kind of people you would normally expect to be Tory voters. They don't like the fact that Boris Johnson is proving to be rather a divisive Prime Minister. And we report regularly, don't we, on what political strategists are advising Boris Johnson to do. And there's a guy called David Canzini, the Deputy Chief of Staff in Number 10, who tells 
all the special advisors around Whitehall that they should be identifying the wedge issues and hammering them hard, trying to build up dividing lines, particularly on culture war issues. But, you know, that means that what you're talking about there is dividing the country. And I'm not sure that's where the, the mood of the country is at the moment, what the country needs. And I think a number of Conservative MPs now are recoiling against that kind of approach. And on the policy issue, I mean, look, Robert mentioned the economy. That's the overarching thing, the most important thing. We're talking about the um, the housing policy a bit later on. You know, the government is desperately trying to find ways to show that it's on the front foot. It's still got an agenda, but frankly, it's misfiring at the moment. And you feel very much like it's a government struggling to sort of get a grip on forces which are almost beyond their control. Well, that point about the booing was actually highlighted by Dame Helena Morrissey, who's actually made appear by Boris Johnson. And she's a very strong breakster and a big figure in the city of London. And it goes to this is not just a plot of unrequited Remainers trying to get rid of the Prime Minister. She actually lost her job as non-exec director of the Foreign Office after telling LBC this. When they saw the booing um, of the Prime Minister outside St Paul's, they would see that he'd actually become a liability rather than a, you know, a, 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 an asset in some ways. And um, so I wasn't surprised. He's a very talented person. He's just in the wrong job, I think. Robert, that is the problem that obviously it is across the whole party that's pretty unhappy with Boris Johnson, that you've got people like Jesse Norman, who I think sits pretty much bang on the centre of where the Tory party is. You've got people like Jeremy Hunt, who of course came out this week and really announced he was all but running for the Tory party leadership, but then also Brexiters as well. So you saw, we heard Helena Morrissey there, uh, Lord David Frost, who is the Prime Minister's chief Brexit negotiator and has cast himself as the conscience of the Tory party through the pages of the Daily Telegraph. All of them have substantial concerns about where the government is is going. And as George said, there's not really any sense the Prime Minister knows how to grasp or change that. I think this absolutely crucial point is that normally when you have a big leadership challenge, it coalesces around a matter of principle, of ideology. Frequently it's been around Europe in the past. And a core group of people are driving it forward because they think the party's heading in the wrong direction. What was so crucial, as you say, is that this covered all wings of the party. I'll give you one instance. I mean, George and I were actually sitting in Portcullis House in Westminster a week or so ago, and a member of the 1922 committee comes and plonks himself down and talks to us and just starts going on and on about the windfall tax and the retreat. You know, we were all sent out to vote against a windfall tax and then a week later we're forced to vote for it. And I think that's a really key point is they're not seeing leadership. And if you don't have a revolt that is around a particular issue, then what people are saying is, we just don't think you're running this party and this country very well. Even in his big economic speech in Blackpool this week, there's a big passage on we must fight inflation. And we must take the tough decisions and be ready and not put more money into the economy. And then almost immediately after, there's another big passage about how we must cut taxes. The incoherence is obvious to everybody. And Boris Johnson's not shown himself to be someone who's very good with difficult and hard decisions. And there's more of them coming. And I think that's the real problem. And this is it, George, really, is that that point Robert got about the lack of leadership, that Tory MPs just don't seem to know what's coming around the corner at every moment. So this housing thing we'll talk about later was widely trailed. And I think it was rather thin gruel all around. And that passage Robert talked about, which you might say traditional conservative economics of trying to do supply side reform, you know, people commented on Twitter and he said, that. That's a really good message. Someone should tell that to the Prime Minister. Yeah, supply side reforms obviously a very good idea. We need to get the growth rate up and productivity levels up in this country. And that provides a platform for tax cuts if you can get the economy growing more quickly. But it's a long-term project. It doesn't deliver results overnight. It doesn't get you in the situation where you can start cutting taxes in the autumn, which is what a lot of Conservative MPs want to do. So no, I mean, the, the Prime Minister, you just when you watch him make the speech, like the speech he made in Blackpool this week, you just get a sense of someone who's trapped by the economics, you know, that he wants to be a fiscal conservative, 
which means, of course, not borrowing to make tax cuts. But that seems to be the most likely way of delivering them at the moment. And of course, Rishi Sunak's refusing to countenance that. So the economics are terribly difficult for Boris Johnson. The housing policy, and we're still waiting for this big economic speech, another big economic speech, which I'm told by people in the Treasury is barely on the drawing board. So there's a massive amount of work to be done by Boris Johnson. The other thing I think is worth mentioning, it's only a straw in the wind, I don't want to overstate it, is, but you are beginning to see conservatives, conservative commentators and conservative Brexiters saying, we haven't got Brexit right. We need to have another look at how we're doing this. We need to examine whether we've got the trade balance right, whether there's more we can do. And that requires, before anything else, a better working relationship with the EU. Now, so I don't want to overstate this, but I think it's interesting that even people you might put on his own side are saying, we've got to rethink how we're going about Brexit. Just to pick up about that, Robert, I interviewed Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, who's a Brexiteer for the FT Global Boardroom this week. And I asked him about the benefits of Brexit. And it was very interesting. He talked about the benefits mainly being in the field of international relations. The fact we were able to get a sanctions regime up and running against the Russians after the invasion of Ukraine very quickly. He was very reluctant to sort of suggest that Brexit was providing a massive opportunity for business. Now, let's look at where Boris Johnson is going to head next, Robert, because obviously within the Tory party rules, you can only challenge a leader once every 12 months. And I think there are some of the rebels who want to oust Johnson that were actually quite annoyed they had this vote so soon. And they felt that actually they'd gone too early because we've got quite a lot of challenge for the PM coming up. We've obviously got the two by-elections on June the 23rd. And all the indications are the Tories are going to lose Wakefield to Labour and Tipton and Honiton to the Lib Dems. So if you lose both of those, that shows that really both sides of the Tories and coalition in the country are coming apart. And you could imagine there would have been more no confidence letters after that moment. This idea of rule change is kicking around and Sir Graham Brady, who leads this process, has said, look, we're not just going to move the goalposts willy-nilly, but if there's enough demand, and of course we'd have to look at that. When do you think there's going to be another challenge or is there going to be another challenge to Boris Johnson? I have to say I have enjoyed the debate almost with moments of him surviving. There was debate of a rule change. You know, There are even Brexiters who can see the case for a second referendum in some circumstances. I personally am very sceptical about them pushing through a rule change which allows another contest before 12 months have elapsed unless something quite extraneous happens, some new shock that none of us can currently foresee. But I also have to say, just as, as an ordinary citizen, I don't think it's a great thing to have the Prime Minister challenge routinely. I think at least 12 months breathing space is not a bad idea. My hunch is that that will be the view that prevails in the Conservative Party. So he's got till the end of next May. That's my bet. But as you say, he's got electoral tests coming by elections. I mean, they can normally be dismissed and there'll be local elections next May, which conveniently is about just before the period of breathing space elapses. We've got what will be a horrible party conference for him because you'll see everybody trying to burnish their own credentials. Every speech by Liz Truss or Jeremy Hunt or whoever else will be viewed through the metric of, is this a coded leadership message? Rishi Sunak hasn't given up the ghost either, so I suspect we'll see efforts by him to sort of re-establish himself. So everything that happens in the Conservative Party is now going to be viewed through the prism of leadership challenges. Once you get into that place, it's very, very hard to get out of it. My instinct is it won't happen until the middle of next year, but I think it's probably going to happen again. 
Well, George, the next big point after the by-elections is going to be the investigation by the House of Commons' Privileges Committee into whether the Prime Minister deliberately misled Parliament over Partygate. We know he said things that weren't exactly accurate from the dispatch box because he's gone and apologised for that, but deliberately misleading Parliament would very much be a breach of the ministerial code. It would normally lead to a resignation of the Prime Minister or the Minister, but it may also as well seem suspended from Parliament. Do you think that's going to be the next big moment? Well, being suspended from the House of Commons, I think that would be very tricky. I think that at some point it's possible that ministers start to resign or the cabinet decides to turn against him. I think if you're suspended from the House of Commons for deliberately misleading MPs, which, of course, Boris Johnson strenuously denies, I think that's a very hard thing to survive. But it's going to be a very tough autumn indeed. And, you know, we know that inflation is heading up towards 10%. And we saw the grim economic outlook for 2023, so the year before the election, from the OECD forecast. You know, Britain's going to have the lowest growth rate of the G20 apart from Russia. So that's the problem for Boris Johnson. There's no real bright light on the horizon. You know, when John Major started to lose, and Robert and I remember this quite well, back in the 90s, when he started to lose his authority, first of all, he lost his economic credibility with Black Wednesday in 1992. And then there were a series of scandals which sapped the energy and the morale of the party through the 90s. But the interesting thing about John Major was that he was presiding after Black Wednesday in a recovering economy. So, of course, by 1997, when Gordon Brown became Chancellor, he was presiding over a boom time. The problem for Boris Johnson is things are going in the opposite direction, just at a time of maximum political weakness. And the other thing I remember from the 90s, and I just, just see this now, is once the sort of poison is in the political bloodstream, it's very hard to remove it. And what I'm talking about here is the breakdown in discipline the public abuse being thrown around by Tory MPs against other Tory MPs. Once you get that into the system, and as Robin was mentioning earlier, we've got the Northern Ireland protocol vote coming up quite soon. Once people think they've got nothing to lose, it's very, very difficult to instill discipline and get a grip. Well, finally, we love a good prediction on this podcast. So Robert, will Boris Johnson lead the Tories into the next election? I, on balance, think he won't. Since you asked, I hope you're going to answer this question too, Seb. George? And usually I got one prediction more or less right this week, didn't I? In fact, we both did seven, didn't we? both guess the number of rebels broadly. I think I said 140, you said 150. It turned out to be 148. So we're on a bit of a roll here. I'm going to be contrarian because I've always thought that sort of inertia is quite a big thing in politics. So let's say that Boris Johnson, yes, I think he possibly will lead the Tories into the next election. Well, Robert, I'm afraid I'm actually going to have to agree with George here. And I think that inertia is a very big thing for Tory MPs. And the Cabinet have shown this week they're not really willing to move. And by the time we get to next May, I think Prime Minister will be talking a lot about a general election. So I think on balance, although it's tight, you probably will lead the Tories into the next race. George and Robert, thank you very kindly for joining. The 2019 Tory manifesto promised to solve the UK's housing crisis with major planning reforms and pledges to build 300 homes a year. Both, it seems, aren't going to happen. Instead of major policy reform, the Johnson government pledged this week to extend the right to buy council homes to those living in housing associations. The PM also pledged a mortgage review to help people get on the ladder without a huge deposit. Announcing this new policy, Michael Gove insisted it went beyond a few pilots and would tie into other measures the government is doing to ease the crisis. Housing policy is a mosaic. This is a a very important part of it. But what we're announcing today is also linked to the legislation that we introduced in the House of Commons yesterday to uh, uh, ensure that we can improve the supply of housing. 
Jim Picard, welcome back. Let's begin with the particular policy announced this week. How many people is it going to help and is there any new money behind it? So we have to remember that this is all should be seen through the prism of the fact that Boris Johnson narrowly won a confidence vote in him by his own MPs on Monday evening. And he's determined to start talking more about domestic policy issues in the economy, basically to shift the political debate. So what we had in this announcement, we had three policies, all problematic in different ways. The first policy, which was first announced in 2015 by David Cameron, was to extend right to buy to the several million people who live in properties owned by housing associations, which are kind of not-for-profit companies, which are now a bigger owner of social housing than councils. Now, the problem with this policy is that Cameron launched it. The government did a pilot in the West Midlands. And Cameron always said something that Johnson's saying, which is, you know, they're aware that the right to buy original policy led to to a reduction in homes and and they want this one to be a one-for-one replacement. So when you sell a home, you use that money to build a new one. But the pilot they did a couple of years ago found that that didn't really work. The second policy that they announced was that they would uh, let people on housing benefit use that towards uh, trying to get a mortgage to buy a home. And people pointed out that the problem with that is that to be eligible for benefits, you can't have savings of more than £16,000. So the question arises, how would you get your deposit? And Boris Johnson did have an answer on that that we can come back to. But I think that was the immediate problem with that. And in a country where I think 10 million people have savings of less than £500, it seems to almost betray a slight misunderstanding of what kind of people live in housing association or council property, not necessarily people that can afford to service a mortgage. And then the third element of this was a review of the mortgage market. Boris Johnson said that he wants banks to consider basically doing longer fixed-term mortgages and also mortgages on more generous loan-to-values, so maybe kind of 98% loans rather than 95 is the usual limit at the moment. And of course, that is potentially problematic because last time we had people loaning close to 100%, or in the case of Northern Rock, more than 100% on mortgages back in 2007, it exacerbated the financial crash last time around. So those are the, those are the three policies. Well, Vicky Spratt, it's a delight to have you on the podcast. What did you make of Michael Gove's announcement? Well, where, where to begin? I think it's interesting that this has all come out in the week following Boris Johnson narrowly surviving a no-confidence vote. Because actually, since Mr Gove was installed at what is now called the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, what, what was previously called the Ministry for Housing last year, he has really grasped the housing crisis. And certainly, you know, as housing correspondent at the iPaper, I regularly speak to housing experts who've been working on trying to solve the housing crisis and working on trying to get policies through for years. And they've all been incredibly enthusiastic about Mr. Gove. They really think that he gets the issue. And I cannot stress how much of a gear change there has been at the Department for Leveling Up since he became the Secretary of State for Housing. He has been talking about social housing, openly acknowledging the need to build more, which is in line of recommendations from housing charities such as Shelter. But of course, saying that we need to build more and actually convincing other government departments to release the money to build more is a very different thing. So what we've seen in the week following this no confidence vote is a sort of rush to get some policies out, as Jim rightly notes, to sort of redirect the conversation. But they seem to me to be rather at odds with what I've been hearing from Michael Gove. Just this week, we had the social housing regulation bill come out. 
really, really important piece of legislation that has been in the works since Grenfell and really centering the importance of social housing in Britain again, giving social tenants more consumer rights. And as Michael Gove has been preparing to announce that, he has been talking about how we need more social homes. And yet this week, suddenly we're expanding right to buy, which will mean that we lose what social housing stock we have left. I think it's really important to remember that when right to buy was introduced in the 80s under Thatcher, we had a very, very different landscape. Since then, we've lost close to 2 million social homes through the scheme. So it seems to me like this is political manoeuvring. I'm not sure that Michael Gove himself is even fully behind it, just listening to him talk about it. He's obviously being told to defend this policy, but um, I found some of some of his defences rather half-hearted. Now, Jim, let's try and take each of the elements of this in turn. So we've talked there about, Vicky was saying, the fact that it's going to actually reduce the social housing stock. Michael Gove did make a pledge, I believe, that they would replace that, although, again, not much details about that. But tell us about the mortgage review, because that actually could be something that does help people get onto the housing ladder and may have more benefit. But the details of that were rather sketchy. Yeah, and also the, yeah, the banks have to come on board. And the banks were very burned 15 years ago by lax lending practices, which inflamed the finan- the housing crash and the financial, global financial crash. You know, there were all sorts of reports into this, you know, lessons must be learned. We shouldn't be lending 100% mortgages to people anymore. And so the question is whether the banks are going to be enthusiastic about this or whether they're going to pay lip service to it, but also keep relatively strict lending practices compared to 15 years ago. And I think even if you bring in 98% mortgages, that doesn't mean that a lender is going to extend that 98% mortgage to someone who may be on benefits or have a regular income. And I agree with Vicky that a lot of what was happening yesterday was political posturing. It was cooked up in Downing Street. And Linton Crosby, who's the Australian political strategist slash lobbyist, who's very close to Boris Johnson, this is the, the housing association policy is something that he's been pushing for a very long time. Well, I would say on that, what I'm hearing when I speak to mortgage brokers, which I do regularly just to take the temperature of what's going on in the housing market, I've been hearing from them in recent weeks that the lending criteria keep changing. Now, actually, mortgage brokers are often in the dark about what exactly is going on behind the scenes with banks' algorithms, but they are increasingly finding that people who are applying for mortgages who are on decent incomes are not getting them or are being asked to prove they've got more savings. I mean, I know this myself because I've been trying to remortgage recently and the bar seems to be getting higher and higher. So I think it's fair to say that what I'm hearing is that banks are quite nervous at the moment with rising interest rates and rising inflation. I do also, like Jim, question this idea that they're suddenly going to be okay against the backdrop of economic uncertainty that we face right now. They're going to be up for giving people on benefits 98% mortgages. I mean, there's a bigger question about whether you should be locked out of home ownership because you rely on state support. I think that's an important question to ask, you know, who should and shouldn't have access to stable housing. And right now, with a depleted social housing stock, home ownership is the most secure tenure because private renting is atrociously unstable. But whether the banks are going to go for it, I really, really do question based on what I'm hearing. Well, someone who was not a fan of this speech was Lisa Nandy, and she's Labour's shadow housing spokesperson. 
government's existing budget for housing simply doesn't add up. They've got a great big hole because they haven't been able to persuade developers to foot the bill for the building safety measures that are needed after Grenfell. They asked for four billion. They've only got around half of that money, so they're two billion short. Um, And we've got a severe shortage of affordable housing in this country. We've got a million people on the housing waiting lists. By their own reckoning, this will help a few thousand families a year. Well, Jim, one thing that Boris Johnson said when he was delivering this speech, he was asked in the Q&A afterwards about the Tory party's target to build 300,000 homes a year. And he actually walked back from that and said he didn't like numerical targets and wasn't sure this wasn't going to be met. And I guess this speaks to this general feeling the government's not being ambitious enough given the scale of the challenge. Yeah, exactly. And and I think the other point I wanted to make, I, I referenced earlier how Boris Johnson has a whizzy idea for how people on housing benefit who can only save up to £16,000 and therefore currently it's impossible to see them getting a, a home worth more than about 100 k which basically excludes most of the country. His whizzy idea is that he would allow basically savings through the help to buy ISA or through the lifetime ISA to be exempt from the 16000 cap. And then in theory, more people on benefits could save more than sixteen grand and be more likely to buy a property. But if you stop to think about that for a second, you realise what is the logical consequence of that it could mean hundreds of thousands or millions more people being able to claim universal credit because they have, they will have bigger savings which they will stuff into these ISAs. And has he thought this through a massive extra bill on, on universal credit? I don't think he has. So on the planning issue, yes, the 300,000 target was very much linked to the big planning reform which was abandoned last year. And that planning reform was driven by Dominic Cummings when he was the star of Downing Street when he was chief of staff to Johnson and other colleagues there. And the whole idea was that you'd have a massive revamp of the planning system and you would have new planning zones where land, if it was allocated as development land, for example, you could just stick up properties there without worrying too much about planning. So that would have been a really radical form, very, very controversial, particularly among Shire Tories, which is why they eventually scrapped it, even though they've got an 80-seat majority and they could have theoretically pushed it through. They have scrapped that in favour of some quite thin reforms, which Vicky will probably know more about than me, but it seems to just come down to a new infrastructure levy, which replaces a couple of old infrastructure levy type things and some sort of digitalisation of of the planning system. It's very, very thin gruel. And so yet again, we have a Tory government encouraging demand and probably not really doing enough on the supply side. Well, Vicky, this is the fundamental point, isn't it? That when Boris Johnson won that 80-seat majority in the 2019 election, one of the things he said quite a few times, we're going to finally grasp this issue of planning reform and liberalise the methods used to ensure we could build more houses. Yet, as Jim said, it had quite a big backlash in that Cheshman-Amersham by-election, which the Tories lost in a big surprise shock to the Liberal Democrats. That really frightened the party. And what Robert Jenrick was hoping to do when he was housing secretary was to have a much more automatic right to build that. That's not happening. Do you think the proposed planning reforms will make any substantial difference to the supply issue? I think the whole conversation completely misses the point. You can build homes, right? But if you're building homes for private sale that nobody can afford, then you're not fixing the housing crisis at all. Let's scroll back here for a moment, right? Let's say that this revolution in getting banks to lend to people on benefits happens. According to the Office for National Statistics, the average price in the UK is now £278,000. So a buyer, if it's a 10% deposit, will need 27800 
In London, the average house price is now £523,000. It's also much higher than the rest of the country in the southeast, for instance. It's not just that we need to build more homes. We need to build homes that are actually affordable. And house prices throughout the pandemic have defied experts. They have defied everybody's expectations of what was going to happen and continued to reach record highs. We keep seeing this with the various indexes, the Nationwide Index, the Halifax Index. I really, really struggle to understand how people, particularly with rising consumer prices, are going to save enough money to meet these high house prices. And this is why charities like Shelter are saying we urgently need to build social housing. Because if you're building homes for private sale, I don't think people are going to be able to afford them and help to buy. Let's remember the government's affordability scheme designed to help get first-time buyers onto the property ladder is due to be scrapped next year. And that's the government equity loan scheme where you can have a 5% deposit and you take out a mortgage and the government gives you a loan for the rest. But that's on the way out um, unless something changes. So it's not just about planning reform to build more homes. It's about what homes we are building. And that, to me, is the most crucial thing missing from the conversation. Well, Jim, finally, if I was able to pick you up and put you in to the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, what would you do? I assume you would want to go back to much more liberalised planning reforms. But if you were able to really get a grasp of this, what would be on your menu? I mean, I, th- I think to go back to Vicky's point, it's true that even if you built 300,000 homes a year, it may not push down prices because there have been demographic changes, more people living on their own immigration over the last 20 years. So there is the sort of structural need for more housing. I think the counter argument though is that if you hardly build any new homes, then prices would go up even further. And But I do totally accept that for most first-time buyers, you know, even if prices fell 3% or 5% or something, it, it wouldn't be enough for them to get onto the ladder. So I probably would liberalise the planning reforms and, and basically I think some of these Southern Tory MPs might need to just suck it up because the needs of young people to get on the housing ladder is probably more important than their concerns about green pastures, if I'm being frank about it. But I also totally agree with Vicky that, you know, all this Tory talk about home ownership is is always going to be an impossible dream for millions of people for various reasons. You know, I talked earlier about how there are 10 million people with, with savings less than 500 quid in this country. They do need a safety net and they need safe, secure social housing subsidized by the state. And I think the, the decrease we've seen in recent years has not been very healthy. Well, Jim and Vicky, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us. All the usual channels you receive your podcast get episodes every Saturday morning. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.